Hi, FYI listeners. Before we jump into this episode of the For Your Innovation podcast, we wanted to invite you to join our Q&A video conference, Biz 2020, on Wednesday, June 24th at 1 p.m. There, Jennifer Doudna, co-inventor of CRISPR gene editing, Jackie Rhesus, Square's capital lead, and Kathy Wood, ARC CEO and CIO, will discuss how innovation gains traction during tumultuous times. To register or find a replay of the event, click the link in the podcast description or check out ARK Invest on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And with that, we hope you enjoy our latest episode of FYI. Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARK or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARK to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to FYI. Today, we're joined by Oliver Cameron, co-founder and CEO of Voyage. I'm Tasha Keeney, analyst at ARK. I'm joined by my colleague, James Wang. And today, we'll be talking about autonomous cars. Oliver, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'd, I'd love to, to start for our audience just hearing a little bit more about your background, how, how Voyage got started, and what sort of separates you from the pack in the autonomous world. For sure. So the way Voyage got started was a little different than some of the other autonomous vehicle companies. We, as a founding team, all worked at the online education startup Udacity. And at Udacity, we were focused on teaching the world uh, technologies like machine learning, robotics, and eventually we also built a curriculum around self-driving cars. And what was really fun at Udacity was getting to work with its founder, Sebastian Thrun. Sebastian also founded the Google self-driving car project way back when. And as a result, of course, had a, had a whole, bunch of, whole bunch of knowledge about this space. So we built that curriculum and we spread it as far as we could across the world. And then we saw all of, you know, all of these great students having a bunch of fun building technologies. And we thought, why should they have all the fun? Let's go build our own technology. And about three years ago, we decided to go start Voyage. And what really separates Voyage, I would say, from the rest is that we focused on bringing this technology to market as soon as possible, serving those who need it the most. So we're not going to, you know, make brags about our technology working in downtown, you know, city centers. But what we are going to brag about is that we are moving real people today who have a desperate need for this technology. So, for example, our first customer is senior citizens. We're very focused on enabling seniors to have that freedom and independence back, especially when they have to go through that moment of giving up their their keys or their driver's license and we want to give them access to a fully autonomous car that can move them around their community to give them that sort of freedom and independence back that they had while they could drive. And because of this approach, we've been able to get to market really fast, serving real people. And our technology has matured to the point where we're on the, the cusp of truly driverless operations. Yeah, that, that, that's really exciting. So yeah, I'd love to hear more sort of about since you started in retirement communities, what have been sort of the, the biggest surprises along the way? And yeah, more about sort of the, the journey to, to where you are now. Yeah, I mean, one of the very early learnings for Voyage that, you know, we talk a lot about is that when you are deploying self-driving vehicles and working with communities, you know, working with a community is very different than working with another company right? It's not like you sign a deal with Google and you supply a product to them. You know, you're, you're working with real people who live in these communities, who represent these communities. And I would be the first to admit that we made missteps in the very early days about how we negotiated with our communities. 
we inadvertently treated them more like a Google than a community. So, you know, early on, we recognized that you just have to deal and communicate with these communities very differently than you would companies. Then, you know, what we've learned over the three years since then has been many different things. You know, one of the things that is personally quite exciting for us has been, you know, there was an an initial assumption at Voyage that self-driving technology would take longer than people thought. And that was three years ago. But at the time, there was a whole bunch of very optimistic people saying self-driving was just around the corner, 2018, 2019. And, you know, over the last, you know, three years, we've seen those timelines keep on extending. And it's been quite, you know, exciting, at least for Voyage specifically, to have that initial thesis validated that this will take longer and that this technology has to start in calmer places like retirement communities. We've also learned from seniors directly. You know, we've learned about their habits, we've learned about their behaviors. And another sort of validation uh, piece is that seniors aspire to be power users of self-driving cars. Seniors are, in fact, moving all the time. And in fact, there are numerous communities across the country with hundreds of thousands of seniors living with them, with hundreds of things to do within these communities. And they're looking to move every day and looking to move around their community in a, in a fully driverless vehicle. Yeah. So could I ask more about, you know, you said that you're sort of on this cusp of going to fully driverless, which is amazing. And I think, you know, certainly for sort of the doubters of, of autonomy, we, we seem sort of as the, the market as a whole sort of seems to be on the edge of, you know, proving that this is really possible. What gives you the, the confidence to then make that step and take the safety driver out? So one of the things that doesn't really get talked too much about, I would say, is this transition from a R&D project or a science project to commercial grade technology. And this is a really difficult transition to navigate. It basically involves taking your, you know, fancy perception technology or fancy planning and prediction technology and making it not just work in the 99% of cases, but the 99.99s of cases. And not only that, but it involves a whole bunch of other transitions under the hood. For example, when most self-driving companies get started, I guarantee you they're operating their self-driving car with a gaming PC in the trunk. And that gaming PC is running Ubuntu, you know, a consumer Linux distribution. And that isn't enough for a safety critical system. And in fact, it's, it's definitely not. There's no debate. So, you know, a company like us over the last three years has had to make this transition to real-time operating systems. It's had to make this transition to a safety certifiable middleware so that you know when you are communicating with your system that there's real predictability. And if there is an error, it tells you there's an error. And what gives me the most hope or the, the most enthusiasm for our technology is that we've, we've passed that threshold. We're no longer in pure science fiction or science project, we've made the transition to harden our technology across all the different fronts. We've transitioned to an RTOS. We've transitioned to uh, safety certifiable middleware. Our algorithms perform as they need to in a whole bunch of different scenarios. If those algorithms for some reason don't work, we have redundancy, redundant algorithms necessary to handle those situations safely. And as you start to get through this, I loved a recent quote, I think it was from Dmitry Dolgov of Waymo recently, or someone at Waymo, which basically said, you know, for the, the last number of years, they wake up every day, they find new issues, they, they hammer those issues, they wake up the next day, they do the same thing. And then one day you wake up and there aren't any issues. And you just think, oh, I'm, I'm now ready to go. And we're very much on the, the cusp of, of waking up one day and, and not having those any issues to fix that day. Got it. So I guess if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like sort of a, a, a big piece of this is driven by the, the car um, correctly identifying when it needs help. Correct. That's actually a really succinct way to put it. Effectively, it's that you need to know when your technology is not working and do so reliably. And again, a gaming PC running Ubuntu isn't going to be able to tell you that. And you can look to aerospace for much of this sort of thinking. It's not uh, rocket science or maybe it is with aerospace, I don't know. But effectively, you know, we, we basically need to know when we fail and then be able to gracefully handle that situation. 
And that's, uh, again, a, a big achievement that we've had at Voyage to build those sorts of redundancies, those sorts of diagnostics, the reliability that we need from this product and deliver that in a full, a full package. Oliver, can you talk a bit about kind of where you guys are at right now? It sounds like you're in retirement homes. How large are those spaces? What's the complexity like in driving in such an environment? Where are you with commercialization? Like, are you monetizing already and things like that? Great question. So Voyage, to zoom out a little bit, the way we think about our go-to-market is quite similar to how Amazon thought about it as well. Not to, to make a comparison with Amazon, but uh, let's, let's go with it. So, you know, Amazon, when it began, was a bookstore online, right? And that bookstore set the stage for them to become the e-commerce giant that they are today. And to build a bookstore online at that time, you needed to take credit cards, you needed a warehouse, you needed fulfillments, you needed deliverers. And they built all of that technology to serve that kind of niche, right, in book selling online. And they, of course, with the momentum they gained from, from monopolizing books online, took that to all these other categories and eventually to pretty much everything being sold on Amazon today. And we see self-driving cars similarly, where you have to start with a defined customer and a defined environment, and then you'll dominate that market, hopefully, and then take that momentum and apply it to the rest of the roadway. And our first version of Amazon Books is Retirement Communities. And I would be the first to also admit that we underestimated the size of this market when in the early days, Sebastian Thrun came to me and said, have you ever visited a retirement community? You know, in my head were these tiny little communities with maybe hundreds of people max in them. Well, it turns out that there's communities across the country, retirement communities with hundreds of thousands of people. And, and we have agreements with some of those communities for example, the villages in Florida has 125,000 senior citizens living on 60 square miles of land. And that's a community in central Florida that we have a partnership with. And effectively, the way we see our evolution over time is that firstly, let's serve a customer who really needs this. We see that adoption rate going up and we see that there is a path for us to dominate that, that market. And then effectively, let's expand our capabilities just that little bit. Let's take this technology to the small towns across the country, public road, serving real people, no matter if they're a senior or not a senior. Then let's continue that expansion, continue the technical capabilities expanding, take this technology to the small cities across the country. Eventually, one day, you won't have those limitations and you can go anywhere that you need to serve. Where we are today with this process is that we're very focused on commercialization before the coronavirus hit, we actually generated our first dollar of revenue in one of our retirement communities in California. This was a few short weeks before the coronavirus hit. And because of operating out of extreme caution, we decided to pause those operations, especially so because we're interacting with senior citizens. And that's the, the current mode we're in. But we are ready for revenue generating operations and hope to expand that soon as the coronavirus situation, I won't say cools down, but you know, comes to a, a conclusion or a solution, let's say better. Congrats. Well, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Congrats on that. Could I ask you, so during this time of COVID-19, do you see, I know in, in the drone space and sort of like the autonomous robot space, we're seeing some applications actually get this pull forward of adoption. And I, I understand, you know, your core business is, is working with people. There are, there are obvious reasons why you might put a pause, but do you see sort of any opportunity that's coming out of this time, whether it's on the technology side or, or maybe even sort of internally something that you now have the chance to work on? A little bit. I mean, we're a very transparent company and I don't believe that any company is faring just as well as they were before, even if they have, you know, opportunities in this, this time period. It's a challenging period for every company. And of course, not just companies, mostly, you know, of course, people are the most impacted by this. The, the way you know, we think is that the, there's a spectrum of companies that benefit and are impacted by this, right? You've got your you know, Zooms on one end, who are, of course, very much benefited by this time period. And then you've got let's say, scooter companies on the other side of the spectrum, which are materially negatively impacted by this particular situation. I think we're somewhere in the middle. 
we're not at large scale where we have to take our revenues from hundreds of millions of dollars to zero dollars overnight, but we are providing transportation to people and behavior changes are going to occur and behavior changes will occur. It depends on how long those behavior changes take and how long those last. But I, I have to believe that this situation is going to last longer than people think and is going to cause people to move less, not more. So, you know, we're bracing for that and we're preparing for that. On the flip side, if I think a little more optimistically, you know, our focus, like we've talked about, is on senior citizens. And seniors in this particular situation are disproportionately impacted, right, both from a health perspective, but also social issues. And we want to make sure that the seniors who want to move or who need to move, whether it's doctor's appointments, whether it's getting out of their homes and doing what they need to for exercise, you know, we want to make sure that our service can provide those sorts of functions. And, you know, today, a lot of seniors that have significant disabilities are reliant on services like Uber, like Lyft, or they're reliant on paratransit, or they're reliant on friends or neighbors. And in a you know, post-COVID-19 world, perhaps those functions will be impaired where seniors won't be getting in cars with other humans for some time. So a self-driving car in that world provides value. But again, it's a spectrum and we need to be able to, to make sure that we can seize those opportunities, but that we're also cautious about you know, the, the impact this does have on our business. Oliver, could you let us know the kind of what kind of vehicles you've decided to use for your deployment fleet? What restrictions, if any, there are, such as speed and and uh, traffic situations? Yeah, so there's actually this almost erroneous connotation of voyage, which is that we have these very, very, very low speed shuttles that stick to a line and just follow the line on a road and do that on a fixed route, perhaps. Now, what we've built is a fully driverless car that at speeds of 25 and below can operate fully autonomously. It can navigate double park vehicles. It can handle unprotected left turns. It can handle jaywalkers, turkeys in the road. You name it, our vehicle can handle it. That said, there is a limitation on the, let's say, chaos factor in that particular context you go to a retirement community, it can get rather complex, but it's not San Francisco. So that's how we think about it. And the platform upon all this is on all this is predicated is a Chrysler Pacifica and a whole bunch and a whole variety of different sensors and compute. We do utilize LIDAR, we do utilize cameras, we do have high performance compute in our vehicle. And that vehicle is designed to take all the failure cases that we would observe in a community like we are operating, multiply it by 10, and then handle those cases gracefully. Can I ask, what made you decide to choose the, the Pacifica? Yeah, you, you may have seen a few self-driving car companies using Pacifica. So, you know, kudos to our friends at FCA. They have built quite a vehicle, not just from a self-driving car perspective, but also from a just a, a vehicle perspective. The you know, I, I never thought I would ever want to buy a minivan, but after experiencing our fleet of Pacificas, it's it's tantalizing. But, you know, one of the other reasons we're a fan of the Pacifica is that the integration points for a self-driving vehicle are really quite convenient and really well thought out. And there's numerous other, let's say, safety critical features that FCA has thought of for self-driving applications that we just haven't seen from other providers in the market. These companies are building these vehicles, these sorts of vehicles that you could maybe call driverless ready, but FCA is definitely at the front of the line with that right now. So yes, we're we're big fans and those sorts of safety critical integrations were a large reason we chose the Pacifica. Gotcha. And I, I know you're working on your third generation vehicle, could I ask you, what does the process look like when you when you switch vehicle types and, and maybe your sensors are in slightly different places? How, how does that, again, sort of development work? Yeah, there's a few different ways in which transitioning can be a, I wouldn't call it a distraction, but there's, there's just work to do, right? You know, firstly, we are sticking with the Pacifica for a third generation vehicle, and that's exciting. We are in the process of upgrading our sensors and you know, the, the, the theme of the third generation is cost effectiveness. 
So, you know, our G1 was all about, let's get on the road fast. Let's get a vehicle together. You know, we know it's going to have test drivers. Let's get that vehicle on the road fast. The second generation was all about, let's achieve driverless operations. Let's find the vehicle, the sensors, the compute to do that. But let's almost have zero discussions about cost. And then the third generation is, okay, now we know what we need. We need these sensors. We need this resolution, this range, this compute. Now let's drive down the cost of that vehicle. And that's really what's happening with our third generation vehicle. And we're likely to see about a 50% cost reduction with our third generation vehicle. We're also spending the time with this vehicle preparing to deploy in the hundreds, not the tens, which is what our second generation vehicle was primed for. And that necessitates talking to certain companies who are much more experienced in the manufacturing of certain pieces of that that puzzle to set us up to do that. And we will have something to announce soon there, but it's a pretty exciting cost reduction, let's say. How about on the compute side? Has that changed a lot from generation to generation? And if you're willing to disclose, what sort of hardware are you currently using inside the vehicles? Yeah, we're, we're very transparent on this. So, you know, our first generation was that gaming PC, and this was back in 2017, a very nice gaming PC, may I add. <laughs> but our second generation was, okay, uh, gaming PC doesn't work for safety critical applications. We need embedded compute, and we need to have an attempt at making x86 compute closer to automotive grade. We didn't see the power from embedded to make fully driverless work, but there were certain components of our technology, think about collision mitigation systems or teleoperation systems, which could be operating off of a embedded compute. Then the third generation vehicle is to basically take that x86 compute and try and transition it as much as we can to embedded, or at least get it to automotive spec. And this is still a work in progress, but we're gonna take our x86 compute of the G2, which has four GPUs. Think about server-grade equipment, NVIDIA's uh, server-grade cards, server-grade motherboards, et cetera, and transitioning it, I don't know if we've announced this, but we're transitioning to Quanta in terms of compute and they'll be providing uh, a chunk of our compute for the third generation vehicle, which has also been impacted by the coronavirus. <laughs> is Quanta ARM-based? Uh, no, it is not ARM-based. They do have many different solutions, and I can report back. We're, we're still in the process of this, a few different players, but it solves a variety of cost and reliability issues for us. Is it still also GPU accelerated for the latest generation? Correct, yes, yeah. And how much power draw is a system expected to use? Yeah, it's fairly hefty. I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head. I don't believe we've optimized that too much between the generations, specifically the G2 to the G3. We are working with FCA in order to add appropriate power as and, and where necessary in the vehicle. And then, of course, also the redundancy for that power to make sure that no single point of failure but it, I would say it's on the heftier side. And, and if we were, as we talk about vehicle platform decisions, some of the other folks in self-driving, you know, we've seen adopt golf cart-like platforms that are fully electric, that have, you know, relatively minimal range, think about 80 miles. If we were to put our compute in that vehicle, you know, that range is going to go from 80 to 30 miles pretty quickly. With a Pacifica, or of course, a, a PHEV uh, Pacifica, we obviously don't suffer from those sorts of issues. But over time, this will become more efficient as the compute and uh, sensors, well, m- most of the compute gets more efficient, but we're not there yet. And could I ask you on, so you're using LiDAR. This is, you know, well, I guess it's a new component to the automotive industry. And, and I know, you know, there's been a lot of development work on LiDAR over the past five years. I, I guess what how have you sort of thought about the component in terms of making, or or maybe your sort of sensor suite as a whole in terms of making it ready for, you know, this, this full commercialization step and, and how does it fit in there? Yeah, this can be paralyzing, right? Because there's so many components that make up a self-driving car and so much of this technology is relatively new. Again, even on the compute side, right? It's, it's all still coming together in real time. So on the LiDAR front, you know, we look to work with companies that have a clear path to the sorts of certifications that the automotive manufacturers look for. Those certifications may not yet be met, 
but we, we look to that world. And then we design with redundancy in mind, right? We've got multiple sensors, multiple LIDARs, multiple computes, multiple power sources to mitigate any failures in those components. You know, one of the things that I, I believe is critical to note is that I know there's a lot of, you know, contentious discussion about if LIDAR is necessary or not necessary. You know, you, you talk to Tesla fans, of which I, I believe you guys are, and I am too. There's definitely a divide in the industry about those two things. The way I think of this is that sensors are, the, the type of sensor is not important. It's just having the ability of all you can in the environment around you with the reliability that you expect. I don't care that it's a LIDAR, a radar, a camera. Just tell me that an object is there. Tell me as much information about the object as you can, and I'll handle it appropriately. Now, as computer vision you know, improves over time, there will be a world in which cameras only provides the same density and the same level of detection than a maraud of sensors you know, provides. We're not there yet, though. The other piece that I believe is particularly important is another reason you know, we are on the, the cusp of driverless is that we've thought about all the different failure modes. And, and one of the more important failure modes, I would say, is a system that we internally call SHIELD. And it's a supercharged automatic emergency braking system designed from the ground up for self-driving vehicles. And this is a system that depends upon its ability to detect objects. It is no good if it has significant false positives, and it's definitely no good if it has significant false negatives. So what we've done is deploy a LiDAR and a camera solution and on its own automotive-grade compute, own power source, and its single job is to stop the vehicle. If for whatever reason it detects that the vehicle isn't stopping for an object that it believes we should be stopping for, like again, a consumer AEB system, it's going to hit the brakes. And it's critical in that scenario to have multiple modalities uh, to ensure that the vehicle does stop appropriately for objects. And even more so, well, actually slightly less so rather, false positives are an issue with AEB systems on consumer cars. And, you know, one of the reasons that AEB systems tend to less prevent situations and more minimize situations is because of the false positive issue. If you're driving on the highway at 70 and for whatever reason, your radar system on a consumer car detects an object, you ain't going to want to hit the brakes at 70, right? Because you got vehicles behind you and you know who knows what. So they punt to the human to take over at that point. But if the car is about to definitively hit something, the AEB system will minimize the impact by hitting the brakes during that process, but it won't avoid the collision. So for us, you know, firstly, because we go slower, but secondly, you know, having a high resolution sensor like LIDAR that has physics accurate depth information gives us more confidence that our AEB system will fire when it needs to fire. Got it. And as you talk about, you know, these sort of failure safe systems that you've built, how do you, how do you picture the conversation going with regulators to sort of show them, hey, we're, we're ready and you should allow us to, to run service now? Yes. So regu- the regulatory environment today is, is pretty smooth sailing, honestly. I, I have sometimes read these think piece articles about how regulation needs to change for self-driving, but the truth is that's never prevented any progress in this space, I would, I would say, just my opinion. I worry more about the future because, you know, we saw what happened after the Uber crash and the Uber crash, which was, of course, a big mistake on their part, you know, that that single crash caused more discussion than the tens of thousands of human fatalities on the roads, you know, every year today. And I think that's likely going to continue the next time a self-driving vehicle kills a person whether it's you know inadvertent because the person steps out before the car can stop or it's an error on the self-driving car company's side, it's going to cause a lot of discussion, right? And I think at that point, if that starts to accelerate, which it will because more self-driving cars on the road means statistically there's just going to be more of these issues, I think there is a world in which there is a, I don't want to call it an overreaction, that's not the right word, but a reaction which you know, prevents the industry from making progress and prevents the industry from 
you know, from saving thousands of lives, which are, are lost to human driving. So TLDRs, I don't really worry about the regulatory environment today. States like Florida and California do some amazing work in this. I worry what the reaction, the regulatory reaction will be as this rollout happens. And if that patience that this technology is a net positive for the world will continue and fingers crossed it does. Gotcha. And so as you solve for full autonomy, how do you sort of dimension the final pieces of the puzzle? Do you think about it as specific tasks? So we're going to look at stoplights now or yeah, how does that process work? And then what sort of tools have you found maybe on the software side that have given you sort of like this unlock to get to the next step that have been really critical? Yes. So when we think about our operational domain, we are really, really, really focused. One of the, uh, it's not a secret at this point, but one of the reasons we've been able to move relatively fast with a smaller team has been that we haven't tried to tackle the whole world. You know, if you take San Francisco's ODD, it's a really broad spectrum of problems, right? It's, it is traffic lights, it's multiple lanes, it's multiple speed limits, it's, it's all the chaos factor that comes with that. And then you add in highways to that equation, you had suburban areas, it, it can get really overwhelming very fast. So by focusing on just what our communities demand, which is a, a subset of all those features, we've been able to really nail the implementation of those things and go really deep. That said, one of the things we talked a little about earlier is when you detect that something isn't working. So, you know, I'll be fully transparent that in the next few years, there are going to be robots, self-driving cars that get themselves into confusing positions, meaning a human would look at that car that's stuck behind another car that seemingly has enough space to navigate around. And for whatever reason, it's paralyzed. It's stuck there, right? And for this, we built a whole bunch of things on the remote operations side. We call it Teleassist, and we're going to, I, I, I believe, announce much more on this soon. But effectively, it's a comprehensive hardware and software solution to, in the cases where the car gets confused, be able to navigate that car where it needs to go and give that car back full control on autonomy. This also works in situations like emergency vehicle navigation. This also works in parking lots. This also works in a variety of situations where the car just gets confused, construction zones, et cetera, et cetera. And then on the, the tooling side or the software side, one of the you know focuses from Voyage from day one has been, we're going to build in-house the things we can be really good at. So we think we can build a really world-class self-driving technology. But there is a whole bunch of peripheral technologies that make up a self-driving stack. Think about simulation, think about mapping, think about middlewares. And what we intentionally did from day one is talk to the best startups that were building these solutions and say, you know, we can offer you something that the OEMs can't. The OEMs are going to you know, ask for onerous terms. They're going to take a while to get started. They're going to be very slow in giving feedback. Okay, the money's good. That's great for you. But what you really need right now is fast feedback and fast integration. So we've partnered with some really spectacular companies, companies like Applied Intuition, companies like Carmera, companies like Apex. And effectively, with these companies, we get to have ready-made solutions to these really tough problems that our engineers can integrate from day one, that they aren't the world's best experts in building, which then enables them to focus more on the things they are experts in. And can I ask on the teleassist, is that more like you you send an, an instruction set to the car or is it is it more like drive by wire or... What, what would that look like? Yeah, so we'll, we'll announce more on this soon, but the short version is it's both, but in a very safety-critical fashion. You cannot live drive a vehicle safely at 40 miles an hour. You cannot even live drive a vehicle, I would say, at 10 miles an hour. And we've done a number of things to make very low-speed live driving incredibly safe. And we'll, we'll be announcing that soon, but it is a hardware and, and software combination to ensure that that can be done as safely as the, the use case needs. On the um, AI side, Oliver, I would love to get your take on 
kind of where we are with trying to solve self-driving as an issue. There's a lot of people think it's, it's, we need better sensors. A lot of people think we need better algorithms. A lot of people think it's just a matter of data. If you collect enough data, we'll solve it. Standing from where you are and, and having run through the actual challenges, what, what are true narratives? What are kind of misleading narratives? Yeah. So a lot of this, of, you know, of course, depends on your implementation. And I'll avoid the sort of camera only discussion for a second, because I think that does call for a different set of challenges to solve. It is a more data hungry sort of challenge and a more research heavy challenge. But if we're thinking, you know, Waymo-like self-driving car, my belief is that computer vision does not need to be pushed much further. Again, all this is domain-specific, so I'm making broad generalizations here, but go with me a second. So I don't believe we need to make cutting-edge breakthroughs in computer vision to make a self-driving car happen. What does need to happen, though, is you need to harden these algorithms. So this is, a, a, again, a challenge that I don't think gets talked about. And I'll talk about kind of a just a slice of the challenge for a second. But think about latency, right? So your sensors typically are publishing maybe every 100 milliseconds, maybe every 50 milliseconds, depending on how you set up these sensors. And you've then got, let's give it the most generous budget, you've got a 100 millisecond time limit to process all that sensor information and then do something very actionable with it because you're driving, right? You're moving at relatively high speeds perhaps. And thus the faster you're driving, the tighter your latency budget, but let's just assume hundred milliseconds is fine. So, you know, you've got lots of cameras, you've got lots of lidars, you've got lots of radars and you need to, you know, effectively send all of that sensor information to a central place which then needs to process that information. The bandwidth requirements are quite high, so that's a, a relatively compute-intensive task. And I'm, again, I'm gonna make generalizations here, but let's assume that's maybe 10, 15 milliseconds of time. And then you need to take all that sen sensor information and maybe you have a map. So maybe you, of course, need to localize to that map. Then you've got a whole abundance of algorithms and maybe some uh, spot checking to make sure you do it right. Maybe that's another 15 milliseconds. So now we're at 30 milliseconds and we haven't even perceived the world right now, right? So now we're localized. Now let's perceive the world. Let's see where all these objects are in relation to me and my map. You do that and that's a really intensive task, right? Because that's computer vision. That involves GPU time, that involves neural networks and you likely don't just have one object detector, you likely have a whole bunch of object detectors of different varieties, and you have to operate those neural networks and, and get the results back. Let's say that, again, is maybe 30 milliseconds. So now you're at 60 milliseconds. And then you need to predict what's going to happen next, because you've got all these objects, and you need to predict what all these objects are going to do next. And this is a pretty intensive part of the process, because you have to play it forward five, 10 seconds multiple, multiple times, hundreds, thousands of times. So you're kind of at your 30-ish again millisecond sort of budget. So you're at now 90 milliseconds. Then you've got a plan. You've got to take all these predictions and these perceived objects and you've got to plan a path around them. And then you've got to execute those tasks. So you're already at your 100 millisecond budget. And all of what I just said is predicated upon 100 milliseconds being okay, which if you're going 70 miles an hour or 65 miles an hour is definitely not. And it's all predicated upon your algorithms performing perfectly without any variance or spikes, right? Now, all of those numbers I gave you as well are extremely aggressive numbers. Operating a perception stack in 30 milliseconds, I guarantee you is not easy. We've managed to do it on our side, but we again don't operate in San Francisco. Because let's say, for example, as your number of perceived objects rises, your number of tasks downstream rises too. You've got to predict what all those X number of objects are going to do next. And the, the problem set just gets harder and harder. So, and this is only a slice of the problem, right? But effectively, you've got to really refine your algorithms to make them operate as they need to operate in the worst case situation and be able to do so in a latency budget, which is extremely aggressive. So to me, in a very long-winded way, the performance of those algorithms on, you know, we talked about this on ImageNet or 
you know, other or Kitty or other sorts of benchmarks is not necessarily the biggest problem in the space. That's risen nicely and that's reached a performance level that is acceptable. It's taking those algorithms or other algorithms you've developed and really hardening the hell out of them and having them perform in the time spans that they need to perform. 30 milliseconds just for a perception stack. I mean, people, for context, you mentioned the first cars or buildings and gaming PCs. Gamers are accustomed to 60 frames a second just for playing computer games, not a matter of life and death. And 60 frames a second is 16 or 17 milliseconds of, of latency. So it is not even as fast as you know the average person playing Overwatch or something, which is, it, it sounds like, uh, just from the hardware side, that, that the amount of computation, compute hardware, is you're still very compute starved, especially given an embedded system and with a power, with a battery power limit. 100,000%. And in fact, again, some of our you know, friends in the industry that use golf carts, you know, I, I know for a fact that they've avoided GPUs simply because the power isn't there and thus their stack has been impacted by, you know, not being able to use GPUs. You know, a quick stat is that Waymo's next generation vehicle, I will likely get this wrong, but their next generation vehicle has over 30 cameras on it. Oh my God. And that's a lot of pixels to be processing in such a short space of time, right? And this is this is one of the facts that gets really ignored in the industry I've seen. And a lot of the focus is on, well, what can your artificial intelligence do? How well does it perform? We, we care about that, but we don't care about it anywhere near as much as how fast is the algorithm and how, because every time you optimize for the latency, you make a trade-off in the performance of it. You could have a really fast computer vision algorithm that performs in 10 milliseconds. It doesn't mean it's any good, right? So anyway, there's lots of discussion to be had around this, but that one slice is a particularly important piece of the puzzle, I would say. If you had to speculate, why do you think Waymo is still struggling to kind of scale out their, their deployments beyond uh, Phoenix or even just getting Phoenix in, in high performance water? They seem to have everything in theory you would need to succeed. They have the world's best ML engineers. They have the world's you know, the longest track record already time spent on development. They have an unlimited budget. They, they have custom hardware. Like everything is in theory going their way. Yet I have you know some very vocal VCs on record saying Waymo's direction is completely wrong and, and it's never going to work. What, what, what is the behind the scenes chatter on, on Waymo? You know, I, I think... I have a ton of admiration for Waymo, and I, I don't say this just to, to be friendly on a podcast. It's, it's genuine. I appreciate their ambition, and I appreciate their patience. You know, that there's very few companies on the planet that would have been patient enough to persevere with a self-driving car effort for 10 years. And I think a secret to Waymo's success is, is the fact they've been incredibly patient. My read on the situation is that, you know, Waymo fully understands the gravity of the challenge today. Did they understand fully the gravity of the challenge three years ago? I'm not so certain. I don't think anyone did. and I, I still don't think many people do. And I think today they understand the gravity of the situation and they're just being quiet. I, I think they're, they're not necessarily hurting internally. I don't think it's a train wreck and I don't think everything's on fire. I think they're just playing it a lot more cautious than they used to in the past in terms of PR and in terms of talking about what they've done. I wrote a Medium post a few months ago, you know, when Waymo announced driverless operations in Phoenix again. And I didn't write this post until people saw a Waymo car in Phoenix without a driver behind the wheel that doesn't have, you know, a whole camera crew or whatever following it. And that achievement alone, the fact it's operating in Phoenix and reporters have seen it and ridden in it, I think is a, is a huge accomplishment. So my personal you know, perspective on this situation is they know now how hard the challenge is. They're paying respect to the enormity of the challenge of solving places like Phoenix. And thus they're not being as the bravado level has, has gone down. And that can be perceived as struggle or fire. And I, I don't believe that's the case. I think they're just being cautious. So who else in the space do you admire? And I guess for what reasons? Is there anything that you're, maybe you're even jealous of? You're like, oh, I, I want I want to get that. I wouldn't call it jealousy. I, I love what we're doing at Voyage. I, I would say, you know, I admire Neuro. I, I think Neuro has 
a smart approach that also limits the complexity of the problem. And, you know, a lower speed vehicle that serves a real purpose, especially now with the coronavirus, I, I think is a very smart, smart approach. And they built a tremendous team. You know, I am a, it, it's hard to knock ambition in this space. You can always knock approach and you can always knock, you know, the algorithmic approaches or whatever, but no one can knock the ambition of these folks. So, you know, Zooks, for example, I'm a big fan of because they're taking a very bold bet. Now, some question the the bet itself, meaning should they be building a vehicle versus should they be building a self-driving technology? I personally am a fan that someone else is trying to tackle that problem and only applaud their ambition. And it seems like their technology, you know, is is working. I likely have more doubts on self-driving trucking than I do on robo-taxes at this point. I won't name names and I won't get into a, a negative mode here, but I think there is there was a hype about self-driving trucking that and not even with Starsky's, uh, Starsky Robotics' recent posts or death, that problem is harder than people think, given the size of the vehicle and given the speed it's operating at. And I think that was underestimated. Yeah, I've, I, you know, I've, I hear a lot about trucking, and we often get the question, oh, do you think this is actually going to happen first because it's mostly highway? And it seems like there's a lot of sort of structural things there with unions that you don't have in the passenger car space. But you're saying that even sort of on the the solving for autonomy side. It's just a more difficult problem. It's a more difficult problem than I think people appreciate. That said, you get a self-driving trucking person on this podcast. I'm sure they'd say the inverse that robo-taxis are ridiculously hard. My gut is that, and we have some folks from trucking companies you know, that we, we of course have internally, there is a problem set of two things. One is speed and one is failure, right? So if you are going 65 miles an hour and you're in the far left lane, and you need to, you know, get to a safe state because a one in a million event has happened, a sensor is on fire, your compute just imploded, your algorithm, like kernel panics, who knows what, right? You are now in a space where you are a very, very, very heavy vehicle and you need to get to a safe state at the side of the road. Now, doing so is very, very difficult because you're all that chaos is happening and you need to safely navigate autonomously, maybe for two, three, four, five minutes to get to the side of the road. And that challenge of what happens when all hell breaks loose is what worries me the most about trucking. The, the challenge of solving a highway and sticking between lane lines, autopilot is great for that. I know you, know, you add a LIDAR and you add some you know, higher resolution radars and take away the cost challenge, then sure, you can stick within those lane lines for thousands of miles. It's when all hell breaks loose when you need to guarantee the safety of other road users that I, I have some doubts about trucking and just high-speed driving in general. Yeah, so I guess as we sort of come up on the hour here, if, if I could ask you and anything that you think that, that people are missing about the space or sort of what maybe what you're most excited about in the, in the next year or so. You know, there's a lot of commentary out there about self-driving. So I, I think as a sum of all that commentary, I, I don't believe anything's been missed. I, I think it's easy to disagree with it and easy to agree with what you want to hear. But the truth is, there's, there's probably all the opinions already out there. And I, I don't think I'd add too much to that. I, I would say, you know, that the thing I'm most excited about is that in times where people are most pessimistic about a technology, which is the mode I think we're in right now with self-driving cars, it is the time when you can surprise and delight people the most, right? Because there is going to be a slower rollout of this technology than we had hoped, but it is within reach that real people will begin moving in their daily lives in a car that drives itself. And, you know, for me, building this technology, there's no greater thrill than seeing a car drive itself with a person who's smiling in the back who maybe didn't have the freedom and independence that they had without this technology. And that that's on the doorstep. That's that's not far away. Again, we can all debate if that doorstep is a year away or two, three, four years away, but it's it's really, really, really close. And that is personally quite exciting and exhilarating. And even with all the depression, you know, that can be felt in self-driving. That's what you know keeps me energized every single day. 
and the team at, at Voyage as well, I believe. I'll ask one more compute question. On the training side, we've seen Tesla even spend money developing their own training computers. We've seen various companies invest a lot there. And there's also a lot of data labeling requirements that seem to be better understood and more reported now. Could you give us a sense of how large those kind of investments are? Is it more on just building out servers? Is it hiring a lot of people with labeling? If I'm doing a startup now to, to late to the party, self-driving startup, how much should I expect to spend on that kind of stuff? You know, for us, it's a multi-million dollar set of investments. And we're, you know, on the smaller size, we've raised $52 million. So, you know, that is a relatively large investment for us. And it spans different areas. It spans internal development of tooling. It spans data labeling. It spans compute to train these models on and the sorts of iteration processes. It's a, it's a high dollar investment, but it is very much worth it. The, the, you know, the last thing I'd make mention is that you know, as we talk about computer vision breakthroughs, the, the challenge, again, I don't believe is to get that breakthrough where it's 10x better. It's that you have this really cohesive pipeline that every single day, your models are progressively getting better and better. You're not looking for 50% improvements day over day, but you're looking for incremental improvements and you're looking to make that process entirely automated. And I would actually say Tesla is leading in that regard, at least from what I've seen, where they have automated labeling, they have automated pipelines of data flowing into their systems every day. It's not quite the volume that I think people think it is, where all hundreds of the data from every mile of driving in hundreds of thousands of vehicles is all going to one place but it likely is significantly more than other companies. So, you know, we have our own version of that and we're excited to continue to iterate on that. Do you think Voyage will ever come to New York? Will James and I be able to take your cars to work one day? Uh, it depends on the time horizon. I think one day, sure. Now, will you guys be very old by then? I, I don't know. Maybe you'll need it more then, right? I'm already very old. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think we, we try to avoid predictions of, of these things. Our hope, again, is to tackle this like Amazon and that one day, you know, we'll be in a surprisingly large number of places and a surprisingly large company with, with relatively humble beginnings. New York will definitely see self-driving cars at some point. It will likely be one of the last, I would say, or, you know, in the, the US at least. But yeah, maybe one day we'll figure it out. But if you're ever in California, come for a ride. We'd love to, to show you what we're building. I'd love to. Yeah, thanks. All right. Well, Oliver, th thanks for joining us. Thanks everyone for tuning in. You can follow ARK Invest on Twitter. Oliver also has a great Twitter account, Oliver Cameron. And we're excited to keep following Voyage as you sort of go along this journey. And I'll, lo I'll look for that next generation vehicle. I'm excited to see that. Indeed. Me too. Thanks, folks. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you. Ciao. Thank you. Bye-bye. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.